For some reason that we'll probably never fully understand, an extraordinary outpouring of energy began to occur around the year 1100. It was so powerful and so passionate that it transformed the way the world looked and thought about God, about justice and power, about women, love and art. This story starts with the almost unbelievable life of the woman we will come to know as Eleanor of Aquitaine. Eleanor had virtually everything this life can grant. Sunlit beauty, inherited power and wealth on a phenomenal scale. Kings as husbands, kings as sons. She lived an epic life in the middle of a whirlwind. Entangled with five mightily powerful men who fought for more than a century to control Western Europe. Surrounding them is an incredible array of people who lived in that world doing incredible things, from building stone cathedrals that streamed with sunlight, to fighting two crusades, to inventing fictional characters we still read about. We know of only a few of them, and what we do know of even these favoured few is limited by their records and our own comprehension. Come with us as we journey to meet Eleanor of Aquitaine, Henry Plantagenet, Richard Lionheart, King John, and all the remarkable people surrounding them. To be in their presence is an exhilarating experience. Won't you join us? Welcome back to Lion's Forge. My name is Beckett, and I want to tell you a story. An epic, true story of five kings and the Lion Queen. Episode 12, Teasing Laughter and Glowing Smiles. After the German disaster at Doraleum, their leader Conrad was badly wounded. Louis Capet, never famed for his military skill, was now virtually alone in command of thousands of demoralized, anxious men. Unless they were going to flee screaming back to Constantinople, they still had to get to Edessa, the intended goal of this already haunted crusade. The various cross-country routes known from prior crusading held little further appeal after learning what mounted Moorish archers could do, so Louis opted to head down along the supposedly safe coastal road, the same route taken earlier by Conrad's pilgrims, who were led by his half-brother Otto, a bishop with little, if any, military experience. Louis' immediate goal was Ephesus, where the army could rest. It then intended to continue on to the planned rendezvous site, Adelia, the little port where the army expected to rejoin the pilgrims sent off under Otto and find the rescue ships that would ferry them all to the protection offered by Raymond of Antioch. Ephesus was another of the spectacularly ancient cities of Anatolia famous more than a thousand years before for its cosmopolitan wealth and luxury under the Romans. Christians knew it for St. Paul's missionary labors, with four of his famous letters written within its walls. Now it was a place to meet messengers carrying news from Constantinople, and that news wasn't good. Manuel Comnenus sent warnings that huge Moorish contingents were said to be gathering excited by the victory over the Germans at Doraleum. Christmas was coming, which meant the onset of an Asian winter, 
with its lashing rains and massive snowfalls. The emperor advised the French to winter in Ephesus, and kindly offered to take Conrad back to Constantinople on a Byzantine ship for medical treatment. While the German leader did leave to have his wounds tended, some say by Manuel himself, who had trained as a surgeon, most of his men remained with the French, swelling the number of people and animals needing to be fed throughout the winter by the scanty local markets. Manuel may have been thoughtful in terms of advice, and he may have taken the injured man off Louis's hands, but he hadn't sent food, reinforcements, fodder, or money. With no supplies and no prospects of supplies in Ephesus, Louis had little choice except to head out in hope he could make a fast march to Adalia, where rescue ships supposedly awaited. He confronted a sizable array of problems. His men were jittery with fear in the wake of Dorlaeum. He was worried about food and advancing winter weather, and he faced a jubilant enemy reportedly swelling to entirely new dimensions. Although he didn't see it, he had also saddled his army with a notably ill-advised command structure of his own invention. Authority over segments of the army was rotated among the French nobles on a daily basis. Military talent and experience had to bow to an aristocratic title. While this was certainly a way to ensure that the honor of leadership was shared and earned Louis points with French nobles, it presented some staggering flaws in terms of how an army actually worked. On a good day, it may be true that almost anyone with hard-working master sergeants can get 25,000 men, horses, and baggage carts pointed in the right direction. On a bad day, not knowing how a leader thinks, how marked his strengths and weaknesses, and how effectively he communicates, can be catastrophic. And so it was, they marched away from Ephesus. Far down the road, miles ahead of the crusader army, Otto of Freising's worn pilgrims and baggage handlers struggled, as they had ever since leaving Conrad. They had never had an easy time of it, these civilians led by a bishop. While their coastal route was thought safer because it was farther from Muslim territory, it was a very hard march across hilly country crisscrossed with rivers and thick with rocks. Dry fall weather had given way to wet cold with gnawing winds. Food ran out. Famished people who had to keep walking day after dismal day finally had to slaughter their pack animals for what could only have been tough, sour meat. With the mules and horses gone, remaining supplies had to be dragged by men and women who were weak from hunger even as they stumbled along, clinging to their last bundles of food. After almost two months of endless effort, worn down and largely defenseless, they were overrun, so near the end of their awful journey, by the inevitable mounted Muslim archers. A horrified observer arriving the next morning would have been confronted with tangled heaps of half-naked, even still-moving bodies, the dead and the dying, being picked over by vultures. The terrorized, exhausted survivors of the attack, those who weren't killed or taken as slaves, struggled to Adelia. Otto, a great bishop and half-brother of an emperor, 
lived through it, but no longer even had boots for his frostbitten feet. Meanwhile, Louis' crusaders managed to steady their nerves thanks to the familiar routine of a march. They were attacked on Christmas Eve, but brushed off the Moorish raid. By now, what concerned Louis even more than Moors was the weather. Winter in Anatolia meant heavy downpours of frigid rain and snow, which started promptly during the Christmas Holy Days. On December 28th, his camp already badly flooded, Louis got back on the road to Adelia, heavily armored knights protecting his baggage train and non-combatants, including his wife. A few Moorish skirmishers were readily beaten off over the next week, but even the dimmest French foot soldier had to grasp that they had made quite a bad mistake. It was the dead of winter in the Anatolian mountains. They were well within Muslim territory, far from any possible support from Byzantium, and the entire army, including its non-combatants, was on the very thin edge of running out of food. They were heading for Adelia as fast as they could, but that slim haven was days away. On the 5th, or perhaps the 6th of January, 1149, the Crusader army reached the place where so many of Otto of Freising's pitiful group had been massacred. Hanks of human hair still attached to decapitated skulls, the ground rusty with dried blood. Ahead of them was rugged Mount Cadmos, so heavily forested, with peaks a mile or more in height, that the French were sure it would take two days for the army, all the plodding miles of it, to get across. The line of march was solid enough. Knights went first, followed by the slower foot soldiers, and finally the non-combatants, including Eleanor and her ladies. All the baggage dragged behind, much of it believed to belong to the French queen. The leaders for the day were Geoffrey of Ranson, an Aquitanian, and Omadeus de Maurienne, the king's uncle. Ranson had charge of the knights in the vanguard, many of them also Aquitanians, while de Maurienne commanded the foot soldiers in the center of the line. The two were supposed to meet at the summit, assess their progress, and decide whether there was enough daylight left to press on. The royal guard with Louis, managing the baggage train and non-combatants, was well behind the army. Certainly not intending to bring up the rear on mountain trails in the dark, it had no plans to cross Mount Cadmos until the following day. Probably to Ranson's surprise, his knights found the climb easier than had been anticipated, the moors most wonderfully nowhere to be found. Enjoying a quick trip with plenty of daylight left, forgetting the agreement to wait for de Maurienne, Ranson and the Aquitanians kept going. One can understand his thinking. Thousands of men and animals were maneuvering on narrow cliffside trails with vertigo-inducing drop-offs hurrying along probably seemed the wiser course. But Ranson's thinking turned out to be one of those regrettable small turnings in history, since no one remembered to send word to de Maurienne, whose vast assortment of foot soldiers and pack animals inevitably became strung out as they began to move. Now the three French divisions were separated by miles. 
the Aquitanian advance well ahead on better, safer terrain, while the rest of the infantry were exposed along rocky paths with no cover. Knots of men and animals got stuck here and there, behind a panicky mule or stumbling soldier. Everyone at least a little frightened, preoccupied with the effort of climbing the mountain. The higher they climbed, the more the trail narrowed. Now, simple missteps could mean that mules and men slipped and fell, knocking others off their feet. Some dropped over the ugly, unprotected cliff edges, worry morphing into fright among the panicky witnesses. The Muslims, who knew the mountain and posted their spies and scouts at a hundred secret places, recognized a perfect opportunity when they saw it. They swept out of impossible passes and poured over the French. Odo of Dieu was in the middle of Louis' army. Realizing that an attack had begun, he shoved and pushed his way back through the scrambling, yelling, cursing men, racing to find Louis. The king and his royal guard came as quickly as they could, but what they found was nothing short of disaster. The Muslims had overrun everyone on the mountain. Men coming from the rear to the infantry's aid died trying to fight their way up the side of cliffs. Louis himself was trapped by Saracens, but managed to climb first a tree root and then a rock, battling his way free, possibly because he was dressed as an ordinary soldier and wasn't recognized. The unequal battle, broken into a dozen desperate fights, exhausted men slipping in blood, horses screaming, went on and on until night finally came. Assessing it all forty years later, chronicler William of Tyre described Mount Cadmos as what he called a most fatal and disastrous misfortune which crushed the French. Europeans, those masters of the known world, God's chosen, had now been beaten at every major turning. Doraleum, Otto of Freising's poor pilgrims, and the passes of Mount Cadmos, one stinging defeat after another. No wonder the Muslims became positively heady with the mounting evidence of their new invincibility. If the Muslims were elated after that bitter day on Mount Cadmos, the European survivors were screaming for Ranson's head. Ranson was Eleanor's man. She certainly played no role in Ranson's decision to keep moving rather than waiting for the rest of the army, but her Aquitanian knights had escaped the massacre. Somehow it had to be true that her forcing herself on the campaign had ruined it for everyone else. Others snarled at her for the royal luggage that supposedly burdened and slowed the rear guard, preventing it from coming to the army's aid. Even King Louis, who had put his life on the line, came in for lashings of blame. Every occasion on which he had been unable to stop a looter dredged up as more evidence of his inability to command his army. With Muslim snipers everywhere, Days of marching still ahead before the French could reach Adalia, soldiers shaking over what they had seen and done on that mountainside, Louis' entire army was on the verge of coming apart. In questionable control of beaten men, the king possessed the personal humility and self-knowledge to turn to Bernard of Clairvaux's favored warriors, 
the Knights Templar. Historian Jonathan Phillips made the point that it's hard to imagine other crusader monarchs, such as Richard the Lionheart, surrendering their royal authority. Phillips ignores the reality that Richard Lionheart was unlikely to need a rescuer, but Louis Capet did, and he knew it. He willingly accepted the Templar lifeline. It probably saved the men he had left. The Templars, who came into existence after the First Crusade, were a creation of their unique time. Warfare merged with religion. Feudal oaths of knighthood combined with the vows of Cistercian monks. Their specialty was protecting pilgrims traveling to the Holy Land. By the time of the Second Crusade, there were some 20,000 Templars, divided among knights, foot soldiers, priests, and the clerks who managed the Templars' lands and treasury. Blessed in the worldly sense thanks to valuable donations, combined with a papal decree that they need never pay taxes or recognize any border, they had the resources to make of themselves a creme de la creme fighting force. Only some 2,000 Templars wore the white tunic with a red cross that marked them as Templar knights, but they were supremely well-trained, well-equipped, and ferocious on the battlefield. A favorite tactic was to mass their spectacular war horses and then charge full speed into an enemy's line, so overpowering in daring, strength, and will that mere men could not stand against them. They'd never retreat unless a commander ordered it. For a Templar, death in battle meant eternal salvation. Men this willing to die were hard to turn back. One of their contemporaries, a monk named Guillot, observed with a straight face that they were forever getting killed, a habit he dismissed with the unquestionably honest observation, I don't care to be killed. As the years passed and their fabled reliability became a watchword across Europe and the Middle East, the Templars also became actively involved in what we would call international finance. Some European nobles paid the order to manage their affairs while they were crusading. Others would deposit valuables in a Templar monastery for safekeeping and then draw upon an early precursor of a letter of credit while traveling a service which naturally involved a fee. Initially so poor that their emblem was two knights riding a single horse, the tax-exempt Templars eventually became very, very wealthy, buying great tracts of land, building churches and castles, sailing their own ships, and at one point, even owning Cyprus outright. Wealth created power, and power created arrogance. In time, they would be brought down, but that was still some two centuries off. Louis had probably departed Paris with no more than 130 Templar knights in 1147, but those who were left after Cadmos still possessed the disciplined calm to endure the disaster. Louis now asked them to hold his fraying army together. He turned his worn-out men over to the order which required that each of the French temporarily swear to Templar vows of obedience and determination to fight virtually to the death. Templar officers took the place of the daily rotation of French noblemen. Men now marched in formation, held their line, 
obeyed orders. Louis was incapable of commanding them, but he was willing to put them in the hands of men who could. It took the French two more weeks of marching and fighting to get to Adalia. They beat the ever-present Moors more than once along the way, something of a balm to savagely wounded pride. But they were so starved that they resorted to killing their horses for food. Everything the spent horses had carried, from armor to tents, had to be dumped along the roads. Straggling exhausted into Adalia, they must have made a pitiful impression on the locals. Nor did their bad luck desert them. Once again, they had trouble buying food, even at what the French described as the grossly inflated prices in the unfriendly town markets. Odo of Dieu, never one to let an opportunity pass for complaining about detested foreigners, wrote that the army's stay in Adalia cost them more than all the rest of the trip combined. Many crusaders, who had been emptying their wallets since they had left Paris months before, were running out of money. Louis was generously using much of his royal purse, every penny of which had been raised through taxes, to bail out men who had long since burned through their own travel funds. It would gain him respect and affection from men who otherwise had begun to lose faith in their luckless king. Louis had saved his army, but the hospitality of Antioch was still at least a month's march to the east. While the infantry grappled with that prospect, the king himself caught a Byzantine ship in the early spring of 1149. Sailing with him, undoubtedly happy to see the last of their once glamorous adventure, was his wife. She was 23 years old and would be greeting her uncle Raymond, Prince of Antioch, for the first time in more than a decade. The last time they had met, neither had been married. Although a queen had never before gone on crusade, Alionor's presence was not much discussed by the chroniclers until the French reached Antioch, and the little that was said rings far more of gossip and rumor than fact. Some said that she and her ladies dressed themselves as Amazons, the legendary fierce, if distractingly bare-breasted women warriors of myth. This story, no doubt sadly untrue, was probably started by the Byzantine chronicler Coniates, who compared Eleanor to the mythical queen of the Amazons when he saw her in Constantinople, although it's impossible to say whether he was impressed or horrified by the sight of so many women riding as he described them, boldly astride their saddles, dressed in armor just like men. Antioch was the domain of Eleanor's uncle Raymond, considered a formidable ruler of the Outremer. Amy Kelly, one of Eleanor's biographers, tells the story that he was so strong he could chin himself while gripping a doubtlessly stunned warhorse between his thighs. Now in his late thirties, this younger son of William IX of Aquitaine had married his way to a crown twelve years before by wedding Constance, the heiress to the principality, when she had been a child of ten. They had two children by now, a son named Bohemund and a little girl. Their capital, another of the dizzyingly old cities as common as sand in this part of the world, was a terraced enclave on the slopes of Mount Silpius, in what's now southern Turkey. 
Herod had supervised the crews paving its street in the day, and Julius Caesar had been entertained in its amphitheater. In his turn, Raymond, the product of generations of Aquitanian dukes, had made his city an outpost of Aquitanian language and culture. For Eleanor, fresh from the savagery in Anatolia, Antioch had to be a respite granted by heaven itself. In turn, Prince Raymond was described as eagerly awaiting his niece and her husband, the king and queen of France, and their crusader army, which Raymond himself conducted into his capital city with tremendous ceremony. The prince had prayed for years for the Europeans to come his way, sending costly gifts to the French court as soon as he heard the first rumors of the planned expedition. He and Eleanor must have been delighted to see each other again, no longer little girl and second son, but anointed queen and crowned prince. Even his finest hospitality couldn't compete with the splendors of Constantinople, of course, but the sense of welcoming ease at his table was probably sweeter, especially in comparison to the horrific weeks just past. Raymond and Eleanor kept constant company while the Crusaders rested and regrouped in Antioch. Their happy companionship seems natural enough to us. They were close relatives, long separated, with a shared heritage and shared memories. They also had significant family financial interests in the Ultramer to discuss. And what a relief to do so in their native Poitavin. As they dined, drank, hunted, toured, the two would find quick Poitavin witticisms, family nicknames, memories of old retainers and long-gone friends, bits of William IX's body poetry coming to mind in the old tongue, so liquid and sensual. They apparently paid little mind to the fact that neither Eleanor's husband nor his men would be able to understand what was being said that brought such teasing laughter and such glowing smiles. We've come to the end of our story for the time being. I am Beckett Arnold, narrating from the book Lion's Forge, adapted for us by the author Karen Markle Nabb. Thank you to Francis Butt for voicing our introduction. If you like what you hear, please give us a rating, follow our channel, and share us with your friends. Most importantly, please join us again October 30th for the next episode of Lion's Forge, available everywhere you get your favorite podcasts, streaming on YouTube with video episode trailers, and on Facebook, where you can ask questions, leave reviews, and interact with me.